Good morning, church family. Yeah. Let's open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. As you're doing so, uh, I I know many of you came to the fall festival yesterday, and it was uh, just awesome. The weather was great. Uh, The amount of people who came, I don't know if this is just eyeball numbers or whatnot, but just it seemed like half the people were Oak Park and half the people were not. And, uh, And it was really encouraging to... Uh, get to meet some new people in our neighborhood, in our community, and uh, and be able to hear, even in some cases, some of their hurts, some of their pains, uh, but also just hear uh, how, um, you know, what's going on in their life. And so I thank you, uh, those of you who came and helped serve and and, uh, and ran the, the inflatables, who served food, who was handing out popcorn and hot chocolate, uh, having conversations. Thank you, all of you who served that way. But uh, I'd be remiss if I did not uh, uh, thank uh, Jeremy Sumners, our church administrator. Jeremy made uh, that happen and organized it and has kind of the template and, and helped follow up on all the leaders. And I know there's more people than just Jeremy, but he was kind of the, the top of that spear uh, leading that charge. And, and so thank you, Jeremy, for, uh, for a wonderful fall festival that we had yesterday. Well, with all that, hopefully you had time to get to Matthew. So uh, Matthew chapter 8. And uh, last Sunday... Uh, some of you might have been impressed. Wow, we, we covered 17 verses. Well, this Sunday we cover four. So uh, we are back to old habits. But uh, anyway, if you would, let's follow along and let's read verses 18 through 22. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me, and leave the dead to bury their own dead. It's passages like these, or this one, that really plagued me uh, as a nominal Christian. Uh, these passages uh, really kind of struck uh, for me, and, and as a kid who grew up around the church, I grew up hearing the gospel. Um, but my conception of being a Christian was merely a profession on my lips. Uh, Do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, I believe. You're good to go. That was at least my my perception, and I thought that was a pretty good deal. I I could live uh, just like the rest of my friends, so long as I didn't get caught. And uh, and 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 and, you know, if you ask me, do you know Jesus? I'd say absolutely. I I know Jesus. I believe in him. And so, in a real sense, I grew up with Jesus as my you know you might have heard this expression, my fire insurance. I believed. And I can go live my life. I, I did what I had to do. I acknowledged Jesus, and, and now I can do whatever I want. And when I die, I won't go to hell. So as I live my teenage years, pursuing my own desires, my own thrills, my own plans, despite the 
fleeting pleasures of sin for a season. I was constantly plagued because I knew this can't be true. I knew deep down that there was no sense in which all I had to do is say I believe in Jesus, but I actually don't worship him. I might not have expressed it that way, but I knew there was an unsettlingness, especially when I would reap the consequences for my sin. And I knew those who follow Jesus can't be living like I do. I liked passages like John 3.16, though, which said, whoever believes in him will not perish. I still like that verse. But I didn't like verses like Matthew 10.38, which also had a whoever. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. I didn't like to hear those passages or passages like we're going to look at this morning. I didn't know it at the time, but I was suppressing the truth and unrighteousness a form of Christianity that, that allowed me to kind of just live like the world, be just like the world, but somehow wouldn't have the destruction that the world was going to receive. I believe the lie of what some have called cheap grace. What's cheap grace, you might ask? I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer describes it well. You might not know that name, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a, church, a German churchman during the Nazi uh, era who was actually eventually killed for his opposition to Hitler and the Nazi party. But this is what he says about cheap grace as he observed Christianity in his day. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. In this narrative that we find ourselves in, in Matthew chapter 8, Matthew is is showing us that that following Jesus isn't cheap. In fact, he's going to show us it's rather costly. Uh, Following Jesus is is not merely just, I'll follow you wherever you go, Jesus. No, there is a deep cost to it that we must way, and, but it's a cost that's worth paying. And what Jesus is going to show us through his actions, and as Matthew has been presenting to us through his gospel, is that Jesus has all authority. That's what we've been seeing. In fact, by the end of the gospel, Jesus himself will say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he's a man of authority. And in the previous verses, as we looked at last Sunday, we saw that Jesus does have authority. He has authority over leprosy, paralysis, fevers, and and even the demons. He can cast them out with just a word. If we look just ahead in in verses 23 and following, we're going to see that that Jesus has authority even over nature and the the storms. And then in chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, we're going to see that the Son of Man has authority even to forgive sins. What our passage is now going to teach us is that Jesus also has complete authority over his disciples. Jesus has complete authority over his disciples. So, see, when Jesus speaks, leprosy, paralysis, fevers, demons, and even storms obey, but now the question being posed to us is when Jesus speaks, do we obey? When Jesus commands and orders, in this case, 
we're going to the other side. Verse 18. Do we say, yes, Jesus? And do we know what that entails? Because before we can say yes, we must count the cost of following him. And after counting the cost, weighing what it is, we find it's a cost worth paying. Because we see Jesus is worth everything we have. That's what's really going on here. And we must see Jesus, as he'll later describe himself, as like a treasure hidden in a field that you stumble upon. And that you go and you sell all that you have to obtain it. Or a costly pearl that you find in the market. That you you sell all your possessions so that you may obtain that one pearl of great price. And so here's the question I want you to give serious consideration to this morning. Has following Jesus cost you anything? Has following Jesus cost you anything? In fact, that's... A question I I encourage you to wrestle with in your own community group. And I think you'd be encouraged probably here where people have counted the cost. But that's a question for you to consider. Has following Jesus, has your Christianity cost you anything? Because as the Gospels are going to teach us, being a disciple of Jesus means, get this, he's going to make demands on your life. He's your Lord, he's your master, and he's going to make demands, and he expects you to obey. To not obey is, is he really your Lord? Is he really your master? Do you really believe him? And these demands may actually require you to break, as we're going to see in our passage, from all earthly comforts and relational ties. The late James Montgomery Boyce said this about this text. Jesus determines what following him will involve, not us. Therefore, if you're going to follow Jesus, it must be on his terms rather than your own. It must be on his terms. And he gets to determine what following him involves. He's the leader. He's the one with authority. So this morning, I want to encourage us. I want to beg you. I want to appeal to you. To find Jesus more precious than earthly riches, earthly comforts, earthly praises, and earthly securities. To find him more satisfying, better than all those things. And that you'd be willing to give them all up if need be to follow him. That there would be nothing, as the psalmist says, nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Look it up, Psalm 73, verse 25. That you would view him as as that desirous for your soul that all the things of this world will grow strangely dim. And that you would follow Jesus wherever he goes, no matter the cost. No matter the cost. Because to be one of Jesus' disciples, we're going to see here in these two examples of two would-be disciples, if you would, you must be willing to, first of all, let go of earthly comforts. You've got to be willing to let go of earthly comforts. And this is what the first individual apparently does not quite understand when he hastily says to Jesus in verse 19, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you may go. Now on the surface, what's wrong with that? 
Isn't that the response we want people to say when they hear the gospel? All right, I'm all in. I'll do whatever it takes. I'm going to go wherever you go. And yet, surprisingly, Jesus is not convinced. Rather, he quips, foxes have holes, birds, they have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. There's a little play on words here. I will follow you wherever you go, but Jesus says, I have nowhere to go. You think I'm going to take you somewhere. That's what he's talking about. Well, I have nowhere to go. I have nowhere to lay my head. Do you realize what following me entails? That's what he's getting after. Now, why would Jesus respond this way to an eager, would-be disciple? Why would he do this? Well, it's because Jesus understands that this man doesn't know what it means to follow him. And we get a hint about who this person is when we're told that a scribe came up to him. This individual is a scribe, and Already we've been introduced to them, at least at some point in, in the narrative. If you look in chapter 7, verse 29, we, we saw Jesus contrasted with the scribes. Jesus, after preaching the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds reflect, they are in awe and wonder. He speaks as, here's that theme again, one with authority. And not as their scribes. Well, who were the scribes? Well, in the ancient world, scribes were transcribers. They, they wrote things down. They were theologians. They were experts in the law. In the, in the case of Judaism, they had been experts in the law of Moses. They were significant members of the community, especially as political advisors, diplomats, and experts in ancient sciences and mysteries, including astrology. These were, uh, these, these were, the, um, um, these were the, the, the surrounding council, if you will, among the movers and shakers. They were the lawyers in our days, if you will, the ones who, who make sure they know the law inside and out so we can use it to our advantage. Later in the Gospels, Jesus actually rebukes the scribes, and we get a better sense of who are these nemeses that we're introduced to in the Gospel. I think we got it up on the screen for you. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says this of the scribes, and he lumps in the Pharisees as well. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves aren't willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad. Those are those little Jewish boxes that had the law in them, if you don't know what that is. They made them broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. Who were the scribes, at least in general? Well, according to Jesus, they were the ones who loved the praises of men. They loved the titles, and they loved nice things. So this sheds some light on this scribe who's coming to follow Jesus. He thought Jesus would make him into somebody. Now, perhaps this was a young scribe. We don't 
really know much about him. What, why was he here? Why did he find Jesus appealing? We don't know, but perhaps uh, they're on the outskirts of Jerusalem. They're, they're in Galilee and Capernaum, and, and already Jesus is building a great crowd around him. And there's a sense in which this is the beginning of his ministry. He's, he's going to be heading to Jerusalem, and maybe not everybody knows about him yet. And this young scribe says, I'm going to latch on to Jesus because he's going somewhere. I'm going to get there before any of my other uh, contemporaries, my other peers realize it, and I will be the one. I'm the chief scribe around this teacher who knows more than anybody I've ever heard. He's going to take us someplace. I will be sitting at his right hand. I will be at all the feasts, all the banquets. I'll be walking in the marketplaces alongside Jesus. And all the glory. But what he doesn't realize and what he did not hear in the Sermon on the Mount is that the gate is narrow. And the path is hard where Jesus is going. In fact, in the next scene, we see a little bit of this. Jesus says, I have nowhere to lay my head. In the next scene, in verse 23, there's a storm, and where's Jesus sleeping? Not in a bed, but in the hull of a fisherman's boat. Have you ever seen a fisherman's boat? It's not a yacht. It's not real nice. It's just a couple of, it's, it's wood put in. I mean, it's impressive, but it's not. It's rotting wood floating. And it stinks with fish guts all over it. Some of you are like, all right, Chase, stop. <laughs> See, the road that Jesus is on is the road to the cross. You don't know where I'm going. It's the road to the cross. And this road, Jesus says, or it's gonna, as we see it unfold, it's a, it's a road that leads to rejection and ultimately his death. This path that Jesus is going on, it has no luxuries. And it is specifically characterized by giving himself and giving all of himself for everyone else. In fact, you follow me, Jesus says, and I'm asking you to deny yourself. To be willing to die. You don't know what you're asking for. That's what he's getting after. Yet it's this road. It's the wisdom of the cross, the power of the cross that on the other side's resurrection. And so what does counting the cost look like, brothers and sisters? Have you counted the cost? Do you realize that if you're following Jesus, your life is going to look like him? Your path is going to, to involve reflecting him. You're going to experience in some measure what he experienced. And so what does it look like? Well, it looks like considering the sufferings of this present world as nothing compared to the glory to be revealed when Jesus returns. It assumes there will be sufferings, but you compare them, you, you count them, you weigh them, you say that, that they're worth Jesus. It's to bear the cross, to deny yourself, to lose your life so that you may gain your life. It looks like believing the Beatitudes, and specifically Matthew 5.11, that it's better to be reviled, persecuted, and have others utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on Christ's account. Because why? For great is your reward in heaven. It looks like believing 
And this is, I think, a word for us in America. Believing that enmity with the world is actually friendship with God and that the opposite, friendship with the world, is enmity with God. It looks like not being ashamed of Christ in the gospel. Does Jesus ashamed you, cause you to be ashamed? Does Paul cause you to be ashamed? Does Peter cause you to be ashamed? Does the Old Testament cause you to squirm? I wish that wasn't there. I don't like that part. Do you, do you divide up the scripture because the words of God cause you to be ashamed? Well, Jesus said, count the cost. Knowing that he who is ashamed of me before men, I will be ashamed of before my Father in heaven. But, but here's the promise. He who is not ashamed of me or my gospel, my words, I will not be ashamed before my Father when I come with my angels. But here, I, I get this. This is the great challenge of the American church. Every day, every moment, some of you right now are on your phones because you're addicted and you're not looking at the Bible. I'm not like scolding you. I'm just saying we're so enamored. It's buzzing us right now, telling us stuff that we think we just have to have at every moment. Every day in this consumeristic, self-indulgent, perverse society, you and I are bombarded, aren't we? We are bombarded by the prophets of this world who constantly appeal to you like the serpent in the garden saying, did God really say? Who are appealing you, no, 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 save your life. Put yourself first. Friendship with the world is good. Be ashamed of Christ and his word. God's principles are bad for people. God's word will bring harm to you. That is the message that is in every 100% of media. 100%. That might not be in every sentence, but that is the thrust it is there, wooing you. And Jesus is saying you've got to count the cost because following him is a decisive choice. And this is the choice. I will not be a disciple of the world. Do you see that? You want to be my disciple? Well, you cannot be a disciple of the world. In fact, you must turn your back on the world. To be my disciple, Jesus says. You turn your back on this world which is passing away for the sake of his kingdom and bringing others to him. That scribe had no idea what he was saying. Had no idea. But he's worth it. And so if following Jesus requires that you're willing to let go of earthly comforts, it also means that you must be willing to let go of relational ties. And this is the demand that Jesus makes upon the next would-be disciple. Whereas the first was too hasty to follow Jesus, this one's too hesitant. He's too hesitant. He has greater priorities that are holding him back. You see this in, in verse 21. Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Father. 
this request, that doesn't seem too unrealistic, right? I mean, he, he at least gets it. Jesus, your Lord, the first guy said, teacher. This guy says, Lord, let me go bury my father. My father's died, perhaps. I got to go arrange the funeral, and then I'll come follow you. And remember, this is, what's the command? Verse 18, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders. It's interesting. Do you realize Jesus gives orders? He gives orders. And these were the orders. We're going over to the other side. Simple. Uh, Not me. I got to go bury my dad. That's what's going on. I'll I'll catch up with you guys later. That's what he's going on. I mean, you might say, hey, that's a legitimate excuse. I remember my grandmother's died multiple times so I could get out of things when I was in school. <laughs> you know, we, we're like, oh, yeah, that's like the trump card. You, 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 family member died, I can't go, oh, okay, you're, you're released. And we have no doubt that this guy's telling the truth. This guy's not lying. But Jesus shockingly says, follow me. And let the dead bury the dead. Why wouldn't Jesus let this guy go bury his father? Well, scholars are divided. What exactly is going on here? Is he simply, has he just heard that his dad died? And he now has to go plan the funeral, which the firstborn son in particular, that was their responsibility. So it could be that his father actually has died. Or it could be also... I think less likely, but it could be that he's just saying, my father's in his old age and I need to take care of him until he, he passes. Well, either way, that seems like a legitimate excuse. I think we come up with these things trying to say, all right, Jesus can't be this strict. Jesus' demand is arresting. And yet Jesus is telling, no, there's no time for that, follow me now. Again, James Boyce aptly remarks, what we learn here, discipleship is always a present obligation. We can never put it off. Discipleship is always a present obligation. We can never put it off. This is such an insightful observation. Yet some of you keep putting it off. Some of you always have another obligation, another thing that you must tend to. And you think once you finish that obligation, once you've completed through that season of life, maybe you're like I was as a teenager, oh, once I, I do this, once I get mature and I have a family and I get established, then I'll really start following Jesus. Or once we have kids, we'll, we'll settle down. Or once I get that job and once this all works out, oh, now once this trial ends, then I'll get things together. Surely Jesus understands I got stuff to do. Always putting off, always putting off, always putting off. And you think once you finish these things, once those obligations are removed from you, then you'll follow Jesus. But here's what you don't understand discipleship with Jesus is never on your terms. That's what the point is. You don't get to say when it's time to follow Jesus, Jesus does. And he triumphs over all. He's he's the one who has all authority. 
And see, the deal is, is that you don't know if you have tomorrow. Today is, in fact, the day of salvation. And so don't spurn the grace of God while, for some of you, you're hearing it right now. Come, follow Christ, and yet you are having lists of things of why you can't. He says, follow me and let the world deal with the things of the world. That's what he's saying. And in this case, the man in our passage must trust what Jesus has for him is actually the better thing. He's got to trust that what Jesus is saying to do is actually the right thing to do in the moment. We don't have all the details here. But here's what he's doing. You've got to trust me that what I'm calling you to is better. And that your father's affairs, whatever extent that they may be, they're going to be taken care of. What we're seeing here in a live scenario, if you will, is Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and what? All these things will be added to you. You can see how your father's funeral arrangements might be very anxious to you, or whatever extent that this worldly obligation is. And surely, we're not faced with this exact scenario. Jesus isn't here. But if he were here and he says, everybody, let's go, you better go. But discipleship is a constant process. And you right now, every single one of us are being confronted with the Word of God this morning. And there is an area in each one of our lives that we're just holding back a little bit. And you know it because the Spirit of God is convicting you right now. You know, I don't even have my dad dying. And I'm holding up. And you know it. And the bottom line is here, when Jesus speaks, and he is speaking to you right now through his spirit in some specific way, will you obey him? You can dismiss this by saying, yeah, that just seems harsh, but the problem is he's talking to you. And he's speaking, he's saying, follow me. Let go of that thing of the world that you were so gripped with. And follow me. You say, eh, maybe tomorrow. Oh, you don't know, I got this business deal. I got I to gotta lock it in. My team. Or once I do this, my family's set, and then we'll start really investing in the kingdom. What, what might it be? This would-be disciple is being taught his first discipleship lesson. It's like he heard Matthew 6.33. He was probably there in the crowds when Jesus is preaching the gospel. But there's one thing, like right now, you're hearing these things general, and then the Lord brings them into you in personal experiences, doesn't he? You actually don't know what this means till you start walking out the door. And this is what happened to this guy. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added. He might have been the amen. Amen. I'm all about that. All right, guys, let's go. Uh, no, no, I got stuff to do. And each of you are faced with this every day. And so what Jesus is saying is that I am your priority. I'm your priority. There's nothing else you can put before me. In this case, even your family. Even your family. Now for many of us, following Jesus hasn't been that costly, has it? And that's the irony of it. For most of us, 
we might have some objections about, I don't like what Jesus is doing here, but the reality is, is that most of us haven't even had to make that choice. And if you grew up in a Christian home, that's a great blessing. It's a great privilege, great grace of God in your life. I had that privilege. My children have that privilege. I, I want that for all. And coming to Christ really didn't cost you at least family ties. To come to Christ was celebrated. That's a good thing. We rejoice. We take you out to lunch. We, we celebrate you. We invite our friends and, and we take photos of you and we put you on Facebook and we, and we just, that's good. That's good. But that's not the case for every Christian. And the reality is for some, this is, this means I won't ever see my family again. Or this means I now become an enemy of my family and they're going to try and kill me. And that's the great deception that we have to fight because there's nothing I can say to convince you that there's a true threat. Because when you walk out these doors, there's not. Just the deceitfulness of riches and earthly comforts and everything going well. We think God's on our side because we're doing great. And it lulls us to sleep. And so there's nothing that I could say to convince you that this is costly. But for those of you who have not come from Christian home, you've probably felt this. And, and, and the truth is, if you've come to Christ, you felt this. You might just need to think about it. Those of you who didn't come from a Christian home, you've, you've felt this. Maybe it's just in the sense of a changed relationship. We're not the same. And as the years have gone on, it's become very much apparent which, which path we're on. And that's cost you. Others of you have lost close friends because following Jesus meant that you no longer could do the things that, they, that you used to do. You have new priorities. Maybe it's not even sinful things. You just began to follow Jesus and started doing better things. For others, following Jesus changed your life plans. You had it all laid out, and then you met Jesus. And then you began to find yourself not really desiring the things that you once did, and, and now your life goals have changed. You have different ones now. And this is because you learned, as you've studied Scripture and as the Holy Spirit's been pressing His Word into your heart, you learned what, your, what God's will was for your life. The cost of discipleship may also look like this. This is one that I want you to consider. For some of you, Jesus will demand that you become a missionary. For some of you, he'll command that you become a pastor. And you need to count the cost. And this may require you to physically leave your family. You might be on the mission field somewhere, and you will not be able to attend to your father's funeral. Because you're attending to the work of the kingdom. And that would be good. Even though it's sad. You've got to count the cost. Those of you who are in ministry, or pursuing ministry, going to boys, you're in seminary track. Have you counted the cost of the preparation that it will take to do this? Have you counted the cost? Not just financially, but ease of life. Rejection that will come. It will come. The point that Jesus is making 
is that following him requires a willingness to go wherever he calls you to go, whenever he calls you to go. He tells you the where and the when. And so here's the point. Jesus is going to disrupt your life, but not because he wants to be cruel to you. No, Jesus is loving. He's kind. He knows the Father, and the Father is light. There's no darkness in him at all. God is love. No, he's actually delivering you from this present evil age. And he's going to disrupt your life because when you came to him to be his disciple, he enlisted you for his service. He enlisted you for his service. See, Jesus didn't save us so that we'd idly live for our own earthly comforts. That's not why he saved you. No, he's made us. And here, here, are, all, here are several uh, images that the scripture uses of disciples. Ask yourself, is this how you view yourself? He's made us his slaves. Are you a slave of Christ? You're his tenant tending to his vineyard. Are you the hard-working farmer, the disciplined athlete, or the single-minded soldier? Those are the descriptions of following Jesus in the New Testament. And this is why Paul reminds Timothy, who is wavering, he is tempted to become ashamed of Christ and the gospel, and even Paul. Why? Because there's trouble following Jesus. And Paul reminds him, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. I fear that many of us are entangled in civilian pursuits. He didn't call them sinful pursuits. He just says, you're living like a civilian as if this is peacetime. But the imagery is you've been locked up in a distant land, he's unlocked the keys, and then you decided to go to the local pub. Hey, hey, you guys know we're getting everybody out. No, 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 it's cool. This is actually not as bad as you think it is. Uh, do you remember you were just locked up? You're now a soldier enlisted in our army. We don't have time to get you over here. We, we need off enemy lines. You're in enemy lines, in their territory. You're now a soldier for Christ. It's time to go. Sorry, I've got some worldly obligations to fulfill. I've got things to do at my job, Jesus. No, do you not understand I'm rescuing you from this present evil age? No, no, I get it, Jesus. I get it. I just want to be a good steward, Jesus. I just want to be a good steward. No, we're going to rescue people. People are dying. I get it, Jesus. I got things to do. We need to change our perspective. doesn't mean we can't have things. In fact, Jesus entered Peter's house in verse 14. His mother-in-law, he hasn't abandoned his mother-in-law. You'll find that Jesus doesn't abandon his family, although he redefines who are truly his family. As we continue to go down this gospel, you see that Jesus is good. And what he's offering you is a treasure, is a costly pearl of greatest price that, that doesn't compare to anything this world has to offer. But the reality is you need to realize what you're enlisting in when you follow Christ. You're, you're, you're enlisting in his army, 
We sing it as kids, right? I'm in the Lord's army. Where do you think that came from? Think somebody just thought, you know what? I'm going to talk about war with kids today. What can I do? No, it's because they took a principle that's so basic. And they started to teach it in a song. But we don't think like that. How posh and cushy can I make it? That's what we tend to think. But yet, Jesus has enlisted us to war. Not a war against flesh and blood, though. But a war against Satan, against sin, and this evil present world which is passing away. That's what you're at war with. And in this war, we have, we've been rescued from the enemy and now given orders from our, our Lord, our Master, our General to go rescue others. That's the orders. And that's going to look differently. He doesn't actually say, give up your job, although some of you, he may. He might say, now your, your main orders is actually, I'm keeping you in here. You're, you're going to be reaching these people. Nope, I need you over here. You're going to go across the world. Oh, you were good for a season. You got fired from that job. That's okay. I've got you here. Oh, you had this pursuit, but I've called you to raise your children. Oh, you, you thought you were going to work the corporate ladder. I've called you to stay and lead your family so that you may be salt and light and contrast what the world's values are, and they may see what it looks like to live in fear and following the Father. What Jesus is telling us is that there's no time for the civilian lifestyle. As he'll later call it, barn building. I've got it all made. I can kick back and relax. There's no place for that at war. In fact, Jesus says, leave those things for the dead. That's what he's getting after. What, what's he talking about here? He's talking about the spiritually dead. Those who do not know God, let them tend to the world's affairs. Spiritually dead are well attuned to the world's obligations, but they're completely aloof to Christ's obligations. That's the world. That's the spiritually dead. Oh, I'm very attuned to what the world requires, but I have no clue as to what Christ does. And so Christ has made you and I, who were once dead in our trespasses and sins, what alive to God, right? So that meanwhile, you walk in the good deeds which he has prepared for us, Ephesians 2, 10. And so like righteous Lot, you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? Like righteous Lot, he's leading you out of the smoldering city of Sodom. But he warns you, don't be like his wife, who was constantly looking back. Because whoever sets his hand to the plow and looks back is what? Not fit for the kingdom. Because there your heart is. Your heart's with Babylon. Your heart's with Sodom. Your heart's with America. Your heart's with this world. He says, leave it. And come follow me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for us. I lift these believers up to you. 
because, Lord, I, I confess we, we, and I, I include myself here, we're so easily entangled with civilian pursuits. We come to your word, and, and Lord, we know. We know these things are true. We, we see it. It's not just one isolated passage, but it's, it's, it's illustrated in all the lives of the disciples. It's, it's reiterated in all the epistles. And where we find comfort is, Lord, that your saints struggled with these even of old. And you had to warn and admonish them and keep them because, Lord, our hearts, we love you, but they, they easily wander. And so, Lord, I pray that we would combat those temptations, the deception of riches, of ease, of power, of preserving ourselves, of civilian pursuits. Lord, I pray that we'd counter those things with the great promises of your kingdom. And that we would fight even war with our own selves, war against the flesh, the sin that is waging war against us. And Lord, you give us the grace to fight. May this passage this morning give us ammo this week to fight as the tempter tips and to flee and to be fugitives of sexual morality and the deceitfulness of riches. Lord, may we, as the great hymn says, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also Yes, the body they may kill, and God's truth abideth still, still. Your kingdom is forever. Amen.